Hey, good morning, West Bulls. Thank you for joining us this morning on Palm Sunday. Hey, I want to read to you a few lines from a book called Man's Search for Meaning, written by a man named Viktor Frankl. Viktor Frankl was a psychotherapist and a Holocaust survivor, and in this book, he actually writes about an observation he made while he was at a concentration camp. Here's what he had to say. The death rate in the week between Christmas of 1944 and New Year's 1945 increased in camp beyond all previous experience. In a doctor's opinion, the explanation for this increase did not lie in the harder working conditions or the deterioration of our food supplies or a change of wealth or new epidemics. It was simply that the majority of the prisoners had lived in the naive hope that they would be home again by Christmas. As the time drew near and there was no encouraging news, the prisoners lost courage and disappointment overcame them. This had a dangerous influence on their powers of resistance and a great number of them died. You know, the human capacity to form expectations really is an amazing thing. Whether we realize it or not, the expectations that we carry inside of us, whether we know what those even are or not, it really shapes and forms and influences the way we live. Expectations act as filters. When information comes in, doesn't matter who it comes from, the news, social media, friends, family, coworkers, when information comes in, the expectations inside of us will actually include and exclude information based on how it aligns with that expectation. Another thing expectations do is they determine the capacity, the tolerance, the patience, the endurance we have to walk through different life situations. We will actually hang in there for a long time or, or not a long time based on the expectations at work within us. Expectations will also reveal the presence or the absence of hope in our lives and more specifically, those expectations will actually reveal what we hope in. And that's what makes what we're facing right now so interesting. Because as coronavirus sweeps through our nation, and not just our nation, our entire world, the thing that jumps out to me is that nobody knows what to expect. In the last week alone, I've heard four different timelines. As I've listened to advisors to the president, as I've listened to the World Health Organization or the Center for Disease Control, four different possible timelines to expect a return to normalcy, whatever that is, four timelines have been put out there. One is as short as a month from now, which I cannot even imagine. A couple more are more midterm, and then one is as, as far as 18 months out. But nobody really knows what to expect. One writer put it this way, he said, it's like we've just stepped into a blizzard. And when you're in a blizzard, all you can do is sit and wait it out. Another writer in response to him said this, he said, no, it's more like we've just entered a long, uncertain winter. And there are forecasts and there are predictions, but you can't possibly know what to expect until you walk through it. The most interesting piece of all of that to me is that in the absence of the certainty of expectations, people are beginning to set their own expectations. A couple weeks ago, video conferencing apps had their largest week of downloads ever because people expect to now communicate, work, connect with people over a screen. Meanwhile, ride-sharing apps 
The, the downloads have absolutely collapsed if you look back at March in the stats that are being put out there because, again, people expect not to be going anywhere for a while. See, regardless of how objective we are and how honest we are with ourselves, those internal expectations, when nobody sets them for us, we will begin to form our own and they are always formed and always shaped by our, by our external circumstances. And so it's with that in mind that you and I, as we look at the situation in front of us, as we begin forming expectations, we can appreciate this crowd that formed one Sunday. Jesus and his disciples were approaching Jerusalem, and this would turn out to be really the final week of Jesus' life on earth. And as you look at this crowd and what this crowd was made up of, you realize it was a crowd full of expectation as to who Jesus was and what he was about to do. You had the Jews who were living in Jerusalem. They had a set of expectations. You had people from Galilee who had heard his preaching. They had heard his predictions. They'd seen what he could do. They had a set of expectations. There were those who had just recently, just prior to this, they had seen Jesus raise a man from the dead. They looked at this man, Lazarus, who they knew had died and they'd seen him walking around and they thought, wow, if Jesus could do that, we could expect something amazing about to happen. And then, of course, there were the religious leaders who also had a set of expectations about how this approach to Jerusalem, how this coming week was to go. And so this morning, today, as we look at a few different accounts of Jesus' life and his approach to Jerusalem, I want to I shine a light, not just on what their expectations were as we look at what happened, but the insights they reveal about us in the human heart and the expectations we walk around with as we walk through this week. Let's take a look. First account is from the book of Matthew. Here's what Matthew had to say about the crowd. Matthew chapter 21, verse 8. In his account of this event, here's what he says. A very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road while others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. Now this laying cloaks across the road, it said something about their expectations. It said that they were expecting that Jesus, as he approached Jerusalem, they were recognizing he was royalty, that he was a king full of power that was about to do something. But we get even more detail if we jump over to John's account of this, of this event. Here's what he has to say in chapter 12 of John. They took palm branches and went out to meet him. Now the presence of palm branches says something about their expectations because palm branches were a, a symbol to the Jewish people of political and military victory. There's no doubt they had in their minds that decades before, a group of people called the Maccabees, they, they actually had an uprising fighting for the freedom of the Jewish people. And as they gained certain small victories, they would celebrate with palms by waving palm branches in the air. But even in the Roman world at the time, currency was actually imprinted with palms on it to represent, again, political and military victory. Well, John goes on and he begins to fill out even more detail about the expectation that was present in the crowd that day. He goes on. He says, they took palm branches and went out to meet him, shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the king of Israel. 
These shouts of Hosanna, these things they were yelling, were a reference to what's called a Messianic psalm, a psalm that upholds a savior. They were picturing a king who in a political way, maybe even a very military-like way, was going to save them. And why wouldn't they? They had seen all he could do, as we said earlier. They had a picture that this was going to be the greatest thing yet. Maybe a better word for expectation was hunger. This crowd was hungry because they'd been oppressed for, for generations upon generations. It was the Egyptians. It was the Babylonians. It was the Assyrians. It was the Persians. It was the Greeks. It was, it was the Romans. They were tired of being under the thumb of somebody else. And so they were crying out with everything they had, saying, it's finally time. Now, if I could come back to us for a minute, sure that crowd was hungry, but isn't it true? You and I are hungry too. We're full of expectation. See, the thing we have in common with them is that we're hungry, and we're specifically hungry for how we want God to work. Their picture of how Jesus was going to work involved what he was going to do, when he was going to do it, where he was going to do it, what it was going to look like. And I look at them and I go, it's the same with us. Your hunger and my hunger oftentimes is for how we want him to work and what we want him to do. I remember years ago, we had gone to Buffalo Wild Wings and I learned a valuable lesson in hunger and expectation that night. It was after a Bible study here at the church. We went with some of the high schoolers and some of the youth leaders over to Buffalo Wild Wings and I had sat down and I had ordered, because I'm a sissy, uh, I had ordered like their level two mild wings. These were usually coated with like a honey glaze and uh, I didn't think anything about it. I ordered my meal, went to the restroom. And it wasn't until I returned from the restroom that my hunger caused me to overlook some things. But before I get to the rest of that story, could I pause here? Isn't it true you're hungry right now? Isn't it true that we're full of expectation of what things need to look like right now? Because you've probably mentally circled a date on the calendar that this is all going to be done and we're going to get back to normal. Maybe there's an amount of money in your mind that you think, yeah, that's got to happen for us to get through this okay. Maybe you've just got a picture of what normal is going to look like when we're all done. And the thing is, whenever we're full of expectation and we're that hungry for how it's going to look and what's going to happen and when and where, we overlook something. So I was returning to the meal from the bathroom, and as I sat down, I look back and I realized the clues were there. But in my hunger... I had overlooked them. There were the smirks on my buddies' faces. There was my silverware that was in disarray. And there was that very, very familiar, uh, it was almost like a hot scent that brought tears to my eyes and sent my nose running before I even took a bite. Sure enough, they had swapped out my level two spice, mild honey wings with the second hottest spicy wing on the menu. I was crying. My lips puffed up. I think they cracked. My nose was running. I was pretty sure I, um, I needed an ambulance, to be honest. But that's what hunger does to us. 
That's what our, our full of expectations way of living does to us. It can blind us to the clues that are in front of us. And that's exactly what happened that day on Palm Sunday. For the crowd, the clues were there. But because of their expectations, because they were hungry for how he was going to operate, they missed some clues. Clues like one that Matthew points us to in chapter 21 again. Verse 5, he quotes the prophet Zechariah, and here's what he says. Say to daughter Zion, See, your king comes to you, gentle and riding on a donkey, and on a colt, the foal of a donkey. They no doubt knew this prophetic passage. They had studied it, many of them had read it, and they had committed it to memory. But if you continue through that passage, you see that he comes completely in peace. He cuts off the chariot. He cuts off the war horse. And the fact that he's riding on the back of the donkey, it not only fulfills this prophecy, but it's a confirmation to say, I come in peace. And that goes directly against the palm branches they were waving. If they were expecting military political victory, an overhaul of the Roman regime, he wasn't here for that. He was riding on an animal that symbolized peace. But there was another clue that they missed, perhaps the biggest clue yet. There was a tear that began to form in his eye. Luke tells us more about that. He says this in chapter 19. As he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it and said, If you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it is hidden from your eyes. The days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. They will dash you to the ground, you and the children within your walls. They will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. And sure enough, as sure as he had said it, decades later, that's exactly what happened to the people of Jerusalem. And so as you look at the tear in Jesus' eye, you, we recognize a few things about who he is. The tear represented compassion. We've been talking for weeks uh, out of the book of Jonah that even though we can't be around people right now in this whole social distancing thing, that God still cultivates a heart for compassion for other people within us. The tear in Jesus' eye also represented a glimpse of who he actually is. That he's not out, he's not out to get back at those who have turned from him or sinned against him. He's a compassionate Savior. But that tear also was because they had missed who he was. They had completely missed it. In the, in the process of looking for a Savior that was going to overturn everything, they missed the actual Savior in their midst. See, their hunger, and your hunger, and my hunger, our hunger is tied to how we want Him to work and what we want Him to do for us. But Jesus' point is that we're filled by who He is. We hunger for how we want Him to work, but we're filled by who He is. There were a series of books that were popular when I was younger that I loved to read. It was about this boy detective named Encyclopedia Brown. 
Now, every generation has their Encyclopedia Brown. You know, there were the boxcar children. Uh, years and years ago, there was Nancy Drew, the Hardy Boys, or there was even the classic Sherlock Holmes. But the common thread between all of these characters and all these stories and all these books was that you'd be presented with a mystery at the beginning of the book, and as the book went, you were let in on how they solved this mystery. And there usually wasn't much new information added to the picture. It was just using the information you had. The problem for me was in my hunger to get through the book and in my expectation of what the solution was going to look like, I completely missed it. And oftentimes I had to go back to the beginning of the chapter or the beginning of the book and I had to look more closely at what they'd given me. You know what you got to do to see a tear in someone's eye and to spot the clue that the crowd missed that day on Palm Sunday? when Jesus approached, you gotta get closer. And now that would have been hard in a crowd that was cheering and anticipating and expecting and hungry for something that they, were, that they had inside that they expected. But maybe that's the point. Maybe it was an invitation to get closer to this Savior. As I think about what we're facing right now, there's a very real invitation to get closer, but we miss it because in the process of staring at the situation and everything that's going on, who he is doesn't come up in our minds. What comes up is how this is going to work out, when this is going to work out, where it's going to work out, how long this is going to go, what the final solution is going to look like. And in the midst of the adversity, we overlook something more important, proximity. See, how and what and where and when and all of that, that's an adversity issue. But who he is, that's a proximity issue. That's an invitation for us to use this time that we really can't be around each other much to step into our relationship more deeply, into our relationship with him. If we want to see who he really is, we've got to draw near. And so, a few days after he approached Jerusalem, Jesus gathered those who had been close, who had been in proximity with him. Those who had stayed close, remained close, looked most closely. He, a few days later, would sit down around a table close with them, and he would, he would break bread. And they would share a meal that maybe that night they thought it would only satisfy their physical hunger, but they would later realize that this satisfied a much deeper hunger the hunger of the heart for certainty of expectation. And so over the next few minutes, as, as we watch this video that reflects and, and recounts that dinner that evening, I would invite you to look around your kitchen. You, you don't have to have bread and, and juice or bread and wine like they had that night. Use whatever you have if you don't have those elements. If you've got crackers, use that. If you've got water, just use that. But watch this video, and when it finishes, I want to invite you to sit, whether you're by yourself or with your family, sit with me, and we're going to take communion together. And remember, the proximity that the disciples had with Jesus around the table that night. Take a look.
That meal was very misunderstood by people in those days. They didn't understand what Jesus was doing with his disciples. But as I think about them and I think about you and me, it's really an invitation to be filled with who he is as he invited them to take part in this meal. And so with that in mind, let's read how that went as we take that meal together. Luke chapter 22, verse 19 says this, And he took the bread, gave thanks, and broke it, and gave it to them, saying, This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's take that bread together now. Verse 20 says this, In the same way, after the supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. And now I'd invite you to take that cup together with me. Not long after this meal, his disciples, those who had been closest with him, who had called him teacher, who he would become their savior. You know what they did? They fled. They ran away in his hour of need. And I get it. I get it because the event this meal represented, it hadn't happened yet. And so they were hungry for and expecting the how and the what and the when and the where, that it was all going to work out in a much different way than it actually did. But now on this side of the cross, we get to look back and we get to know that that meal, as they would later come to understand, well, it, it actually fulfilled a much deeper hunger in us. That in the midst of dire circumstances, unmet earthly expectations, a global pandemic right now, an economic crisis, uncertain timeframes, that God's character, who he is, is so good that he is still executing his plan. And we're reminded by this meal, that his own son was executed on a cross on our behalf. And so while our hunger is for how we want him to work, we're filled by who he is. No, we can't be in a room together right now with one another, but you can be in a room with him. And so I'd invite you this coming week, would you draw even closer to him? Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, Thank you once again for the reminder of your word in our lives, for the reminder that for all the looking around we do, for all the figuring out we try to do, for all the expectations we have, for the hunger that we still have that is constantly there. Remind us, and thank you for the reminder that you still are who you are and that we're filled in who you are. And so write that on our hearts in the days to come. And as we look at the situation in front of us, we again repeat our prayers. We'll continue coming before your throne. Prayers for those who have been affected by the virus, whether they've actually gotten it or loved ones have. Prayers for those whose work has been affected. We pray for the healthcare workers on the front lines of this entire deal. Lord, we pray for our nation, for our world. It, it, there are so many ways we can't even fathom this is a, has affected everyone. But Heavenly Father, 
in the midst of not knowing how it's all going to look, remind us we're filled by you. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. West Bulls, thank you for joining us this morning. We will see you this week.